What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Since last year's downpours, fears of wildfire in California have been slightly further from the tips of many of our tongues, but the risk is here and it's humbling. The danger itself impacts us in a variety of ways from our northern communities continuing to rebuild to our state working slowly to make plans for fire protection and mitigating dangers. Our guests today have published an article suggesting not only that our state is doing a bad job of mitigating wildfire risk, but that its strategies themselves are based in the logic and legacy of settler colonial American land grabs. Denise J. Martinez and Tony Marks Block, along with their other co-authors Bruno Serafin, Peter Nelson and Kirsten Vignetta propose that we prioritize wildfire mitigation by collaborating with indigenous communities to rekindle native cultural fire mitigation practices. Their article is called Indigenous Fire Futures, Anti-Colonial Approaches to Shifting Fire Relations in California. Denise J. Martinez is a research administrator in the Native American Studies Department at UC Davis, where she researches collaborative governance, indigenous environmental justice, and fire management. She is a descendant of the Tutunaku people and grew up in Shasta and Karuk homelands in colonized Northern California. Tony Marks Block is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology, Geography, and Environmental Studies at Cal State East Bay in Hayward on unceded Chochenyo Ohlone territory. Tony's research is focused on the socio-ecology of small-scale subsistence practices, including prescribed and cultural fire. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. So in this conversation, I want to start by identifying some of the problems, then look at what our indigenous communities are doing differently to mitigate wildfire risk, and we'll finish by exploring how we can look toward and work with our native neighbors for solutions. Let's Start where we've arrived now in 2024 in terms of wildfire risk. The risk is real and it's impacted communities in the whole region. On the one hand, especially now that we're getting some consistent rain, how serious are these risks? And on the other hand, how have our state's mitigation strategies made that risk worse? Yeah, I mean, I think that when we think about the state's approaches, historically, fire suppression um, has been a huge harm to the state of California. So we can see on the land that removing fire was a terrible um, management decision. It's led to a buildup of fuels that leads to the huge wildfires we see today. And I think that when you talk to the state, um, when you talk to federal agencies, they would actually agree with you. I think the issue now is that we've set up a system that favors fire suppression that is built around that as a policy. And it's very difficult to get around that bureaucracy. I think the other thing is just that the problem has gone big to the scale where it is unmanageable for just um, state and federal agencies um, to be the ones to solve it. <laughs> um, it's huge. It's um, We're talking about a ton of acres throughout the state and a lot of work involved in making sure that we steward those places responsibly. And really um, the people that have done that at scale are indigenous communities who stewarded like that for um, a millennia, right? Since time immemorial. And were disturbed in those practices 
um, by settlers. And so, you know, that's, that's one reason we turn to, to folks to learn about how, how that was done and how we can return to that. I want to get real deep into that in just one second, but let's backtrack just for a moment to make sure we're all on the same page. You've said that we set up a system that favors fire suppression. Can you just describe pretty specifically what we're referring to when we're talking about fire suppression? Yeah, absolutely. So fire suppression was a policy that started in different places at different times, but about the 1900s. And essentially has been going on for 100 years. And what it means is that any fire that was started um, in the forest had to be put out. And the state, state and federal agencies have mobilized an immense amount of resources to do that. We see that in our fire spending every year to this day. But when it started, it was really a way to to stop um, any fire, including beneficial fire, um, including indigenous fire. And so a lot of cultural practices in fire had to stop because um, they were now made illegal by this new policy. And so over a hundred years, that has been the case. And even now as scientists and agencies, Western scientists and agencies recognize that removing fire from the landscape, disallowing all fire is the wrong response in California. The bear, the legal, the, the bureaucratic barriers to stewarding the land with fire, to using good fire are there because the policy for over a hundred years has been to remove all fire. And so if someone wants to do use good fire, they have to get over those legal and bureaucratic barriers. And that's what I mean by the system is like, we've decided at some point 100 years ago that fire was bad for the environment. That was based on some racist perceptions of indigenous burners. That was based on fear. Um, And now we've built a system around that fear, around that racism. And it's very difficult to navigate through it um, in a different way and trying to bring fire back to the land. Thank you, Denise. Tony, I want to bring you into the conversation. If you could kind of pick up some of where Denise left off in terms of what the specific legal and bureaucratic barriers to cultural fire are, and then we can start a conversation about what cultural burns actually look like and where that knowledge and those knowledges have come from historically. Sure. So the, the system of fire suppression, um, as Denise pointed out, emerged in the early 1900s. And in addition to the fear and the racism, I think it's important to examine the role of the state in trying to protect timber in particular and how the fear was in part oriented around fear of losing future profits by timber corporations, right? That are some of the largest landholders to this day in California. And so indigenous burning and prescribed fire, one of its effects is to kill small trees, right? And 
small trees are seen as future investments of timber capitalists. And so I think um, that is kind of the crux of the fear um, initially in the early 1900s. I also want to mention that when the Spanish first colonized as well, there was just an inherent fear toward indigenous burning because it was so in part so vital to indigenous livelihood. Um, and so Spanish missionaries also had fire suppression policies that probably were not nearly as effective as the industrialized um, fire suppression apparatus that we see today. Um, but nonetheless, the Spanish also, right, um, in those areas it had colonized primarily in coastal areas near the missions, outlawed fire by indigenous people. Um, and since the expansion of what is called the wildland urban interface, or I would say settlements, um, into parts of California that were less developed, um, there's a new fear that has emerged that motivates fire suppression policies, which is the protection of real estate in particular and, and structures um, in that interface of residential areas and what are known as wildlands or natural areas, forests or grasslands and shrublands, right? Um, and so this, this also is, you know, the fear of losing this, um, these capital investments, I think is a critical component of why suppression is such a prominent or impulsive uh, response that is um, used today by the state of California and the federal government. So these are fears that you're discussing where cultural fire, um, at least in state responses, the fear is that cultural fire from indigenous communities has potential to impact the older fear was timber industries still here, still a present fear. And now in addition to that, uh, to protect real estate, it's it's really about capitalism here that we're talking about. Um, Denise, can you bring us into what cultural fire we're referring to cultural fire. We're referring to controlled burns. What does that look like, and and how do how does that actually relate to those fears? Is it putting those, I guess we can call them industries, timber and real estate? Is it putting those industries at risk? Um, I think that when we think about cultural fire, I guess let's start at the beginning and say that cultural fire is a set of cultural fire knowledge and stewardship held by indigenous people in California, each community has a different way to approach cultural fire and cultural stewardship and cultural knowledge around fire. Um, people are stewarding different plants, different ecosystems. And so fire looks very different in each community, but fire was integral to indigenous livelihoods. And so you heard Tony say that, Basically, what that means is that fire was essential to making sure that um, food plants were producing well, that basketry and fiber plants that were used for uh, material culture, you know, like clothes and housing and, um, you know, everything from jewelry and ceremony, regalia, 
all of these things relied on fire being a part of the landscape um, in order to have um, not just sufficient um, resources, but an abundance of resources. And um, indigenous economy was based on the well-being of all species. Um, and that's a very general statement because there's a lot of different ways that people approach that. But so when we look at the settler worries about timber and then now about real estate, we see that with timber, um, like Tony said, like it does threaten to some extent those small trees. And it, it did potentially lead to less profits for timber, for the timber industry to consistently burn and to keep healthy stands throughout the forest. I would also say that indigenous people use wood like that. That was not necessarily a, you know, it wasn't a threat to human use of wood. It was a, a threat to capital profit off of the use of wood. That's what I think about the timber industry in terms of today in our worries about real estate. I -hmm. think that indigenous fire is and indigenous fire practitioners are very conscious of people's homes, people's livelihoods, and just trying to um, maintain safety for communities. I also think it's important to note that like, people are not necessarily building real estate in a fire safe way. Um, And these, you know, often are second homes that are in a really beautiful place in the forest, maybe on top of a ridge line. And it's like, I think that there's such a disconnection from the function of a forest, from the role of fire in that forest. And it's causing us to make really dangerous decisions with where we put homes um, and structures. And I think that that's um, the threat there is wildfire and not necessarily prescribed or cultural fire. Cause there's a lot of things that you can do with prescribed and cultural fire to ensure safety, not the case with wildfire. You know, I think that that connection to fire and land is important for everyone to learn about because it causes us to make decisions differently about how we live our lives and where we live our lives and that's a part of it is where you put your home um i don't know if tony has more to add i think that those are just two things that came up when you asked that question it is a huge question yeah no i think that's well put denise i think um also i would say you know you can fire and structures are certainly compatible um and it's just a question of whether or not people in the in the privatized real estate system are willing to invest in taking care of and steward the forest in a way that accepts fire and welcomes fire into the onto the land as well as indigenous peoples right um the tendency I think is for private landowners to put up fences and make their space exclusive and not include indigenous peoples for one or uh, the investment that is necessary to take care of the land, which includes, you know, 
um, a lot of restorative work uh, due to the dramatic ecological changes that have occurred associated with fire suppression and exclusion on the landscape. Um, so as it exists, right, uh, people who own homes and land in California can contribute to the solution by actually restoring fire to the landscape alongside indigenous peoples, right? With indigenous leadership um, at the helm. And of course, in many circumstances, returning lands back to indigenous peoples so that they can steward the lands, right? But homes can be on the landscape um, in, cer in certain circumstances. They always have been. It's just a question of whether or not fire is applied to the landscape in a very deliberate and careful way, which is what we are, what, what we learn from indigenous practices that are continued um, to this day. And you're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. We're in conversation with Denise J. Martinez and Tony Marks Block, who published a recent article called Indigenous Fire Futures, Anti-Colonial Approaches to Shifting Fire Relations in California. We'll talk about some of those solutions that Tony's referring to in just a few minutes, but I want to continue to break down one more piece of the puzzle of the problem with California wildfire mitigation strategies. In, in your article, you described a term that's colloquially used in, in Kadu country in what we know as Northern California as the Colonial Fire Military Industrial Prison Complex. Um, I'm wondering if one of you can break down that term and bring us into the conversation around particularly how the fire mitigation practices of our state uh, relate to our prison industrial complex. I guess I can start with the, the military part of it. When we think about fire suppression and how it's organized, so the, you know, the huge wildfires we see today often have military equipment. Firefighters are organized in a hierarchical way that's, you know, based on military terminology and re response. Um, I just recently took my coursework um, to get my red card, which would allow me to be on uh, fires led by agencies and the military terminology was everywhere. It was in every class. It was, they would divide us into groups and we would be, you know, Alpha, Charlie. Um, so really, you know, it's, it's a huge part of the culture. And it's also, you know, a result of the history of fire suppression, some of which well, all of which was really violent towards indigenous people and required a lot of um, conflict with indigenous people. And so, you know, we're talking about militias and, and um, laws requiring violence against indigenous people, starting fires. And all of this to say is that our firefighting system functions very much um, like a military. and. In some cases, you know, I, I work with folks in agencies, I work with firefighters, and I respect the work that they do. 
And so, you know, I think to some extent, like some of the fires that we have today require an immense amount of coordination and that, you know, again, the result of fire suppression and and decisions that those agencies made in the past. Um, but I always think that it's important to be critical of the language that we use, to be critical of um, agencies having that much power, for Indigenous communities to be able to push back on that sense of urgency that can happen on a fire. Because, you know, sometimes it leads to really destructive behaviors like bulldozing sacred sites or um, ruining village sites, um, all in the name of urgency and the wildfire. And, and I think it's important that Indigenous people be able to be in those spaces and to be able to slow things down. But I also think that that job is really difficult for the people that can be in those spaces because of this hierarchy and because of the way that it's militarized. Um, so that's the military part of it. Tony, could you could you take some of the other chunks of that term? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well said, Denise. I think it's the toxic masculinity and aggression that's embedded within the fire cult, fire suppression culture, especially. And then, of course, we see, especially in California, as I'm sure your listeners are well aware, the use of imprisoned people to engage in the very militaristic term of fighting fire. And often imprisoned peoples are on the front lines in the most dangerous areas of um, fire suppression. This raises a lot of important concerns for abolitionist movements, right, to um, grapple with how people in prison are being used to really protect capital interests and to go against really indigenous livelihoods and life ways um, and ways of understanding fire. And so through this training that Denise um, mentioned, right, um, fire is really seen as an enemy. And so that is also that kind of framework really creates this us versus them or this other fire um, as as a problem, right? And so this is the kind of indoctrination that people, whether or not they're paid or um, incarcerated, right, and meagerly paid, however you come to suppression, you are not really instilled with an ethic, an indigenous land ethic that sees fire as an important part of relating to the earth. And so I think uh, the prison aspect in particular is, uh, you know, this has been at the foundation of fire suppression from the beginning, because quite often, right, the criminalization of indigenous peoples who were just living their lives, you know, setting fires to sustain their families and livelihoods, were then put onto essentially chain gangs um, or coerced into putting out fires for the Forest Service and for other agencies uh, in the early 1900s. And of course, we know uh, that it's Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and communities of color that are disproportionately forced into the prison system 
and then forced into these really dangerous positions. And it creates, I think, some level of confusion because quite often these positions within the conservation or fire camps, um, CDCR's fire camps, are uh, seen as better conditions than being in your typical prison yard. So there's an incentive, right? You get paid a little bit more, you know, the food is sometimes better and you get to actually, you know, be out of outside of prison walls. But nonetheless, the conditions are still extremely problematic because folks, of course, are not being paid much at all. And again, they're being put in these extremely dangerous positions, often without really sufficient training and certainly no indigenous education on the landscape and how to take care of it. Um, it's really just protect homes. And so it, it, it raises a number of um, problems, right, that I think are important to grapple with. So we've spent quite a bit of time kind of identifying some of the various problems with uh, California's fire mitigation plan or fire suppression plan. Moreover, let's bring it down. I mean, you all are kind of proposing a, a reframing of, of f wildfire mitigation in California that looks at, learns from, focuses on, and builds with indigenous communities. I'm wondering if you can bring us in for those of us who are who are listening and, and thinking like, what are we talking about? Mitigating fire by lighting more things on fire? Can you bring us in by by really like illustrating what these controlled and cultural burns look like and what is the what is the process that that happens in those actual instances? Yeah. So I can start by describing a prescribed burn um, as it would be done by an agency. And, and I, I think it can also, you know, um, be a helpful tool. But agencies right now are focused a lot on fuel mitigation or fuel reduction. And fuel is anything in a forest that can light on fire. <laughs> and so you can think about how you would see, um, you know, like small shrubs, like leaves. And so you want to remove some of these smaller fuels so that your trees don't light on fire in, in case of a wildfire. You know, often these burns are focused mostly on that. Um, and, you know, they're done by um, firefighters in, you know, a controlled setting, meaning that they have what we call lines where the fire will stop. And often these lines, you can think about them as roads, or maybe it's a river, or maybe it's, you know, mechanic, like a line that's mechanically been made with a bulldozer. Or sometimes you can do it with by hand using tools. And so the we know going into a prescribed fire about where the fire will start and where it will end. And that is most of the case that's exactly what happens. However, like there's always a plan for an escape or some sort of like unexpected result. And so usually there's, you know, a plan for that too. So I think the difference between that and how 
indigenous cultural burners might approach it is that the priorities are very different. So certainly fuel mitigation or fuel reduction can be a result of indigenous fire, but the focus of indigenous fire is cultural resources. It can be, um, you know, cultural cultural processes, like who was involved, you know, did we have youth involved? Did we have elders involved? There is a bigger push to involve people of different abilities, parents, children, elders, and it's more inclusive in that way. There's also, I think, when we talk about focusing on cultural resources, there might be, you know, some plants that that folks are really interested in um, in supporting. There might be, you know, this might be a habitat of a specific animal, and so you you start to kind of tailor it towards the needs of that animal. It's very, I think, thoughtful and holistic in the way that I've experienced it, and I think it's also the knowledge that cultural practitioners have of the land is just so much makes me feel very safe. (laughs) Um, When I think about like creating lines, um, certainly those are safe. But when you, you know, when you burn with someone that's burned on the specific land or that knows the specific landscape, like the back of their hand, um, they've seen fire go through it multiple times at different intensities at different times of the year. All of a sudden, like, it's very clear that the plan that they have in their head is like exactly what's going to happen. And I don't, yeah. So, you know, those fires are, are just different in a lot of ways. And so both are quote unquote controlled in the sense that um, people have a plan going in and that plan usually pans out. I think with cultural burners, they might challenge the word controlled. They might say, we don't control our relatives. Fire is a relative. We're Mm. getting to know fire. We're Mm. here to learn from fire. Mm. We're, um, we, we know that fire has a hunger and that fire, um, you know, that we can have conflict with fire and, and people are aware of that, but it's, you know, fire is not the enemy. Um, seeing fire as a relative, you start to think very differently on the land and and with your teammates. And, you know, you can start to see how that creates a a different worldview (laughs) to not, you know, be in a position of like fire is enemy, we have to defeat it, we have to stop it, we have to make sure it doesn't get out of our control lines. And instead say like, okay, like, what is fire doing? What are we learning? And I find that I learn a lot more about fire behavior and what fire looks like when I think in the way that my indigenous mentors have told me to think. And you're listening to Lawn Disorder on KPFA. We're in conversation with Denise Martinez and Tony Marksblock, whose recent uh, co-authored article is called Indigenous Fire Futures, Anti-Colonial Approaches to Shifting Fire Relations in California. For a framework where fire is not the enemy, as you just described, where fire is a relative, what does it mean to be exploring and taking part in in doing these fires within the legal structures that we're in? I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about 
how how native communities that are that are engaging in these practices have to interface with state agencies and if there are moments or experiences where state agencies are actually embracing this as opposed to only being more restrictive i think that's exactly what causes a range of experiences around cultural burning and i i think it's also you know, people talk about cultural be- burning being a small scale um, type of burning. I think that's a restriction set mostly by um, land jurisdiction and not necessarily a property of cultural burning, for lack of a better word. Certainly, Indigenous people have to interact with state and federal agencies often. Um, I think the the places where I've seen Indigenous people burn in a more sovereign way are places that are either private land or maybe fee land on on tribal lands. In other cases, there's always a interaction that has to happen with the state or federal agency that has jurisdiction. And so that can cause a lot of pain points because this is, you know, indigenous land, but um, under, you know, legal authority under U.S. legal authority, it's actually, you know, U.S. Forest Service land or it's, you know, California Parks land. And so I think that Indigenous people have been really good about creating new agreements with those agencies to um, co-steward land. They've been really good at pushing back against policy and creating new policies in California that support cultural burning. And I think that I, you know, I give a lot of credit to those activists and those cultural burners that made that happen because um, for a long time, cultural burning wasn't recognized the way that it is today. And I think that um, there's still a lot of work to be done. I think I have seen, you know, the state really step up and it's trying to learn about cultural burning. I think there's still a lot of ways that the state could do better and certainly like not everyone not every individual in the state knows about cultural burning and that's an issue but i've seen you know folks from cal fire come and burn um at workshops with ron good and what i love about that is that ron who is an elder and a cultural fire practitioner he gives them like he teases the heck out of them and it's so funny but they take it and i feel like it's led to a lot of learning and i i mean i think that's you know in a lot of ways how the elders i know teach is through humor and through teasing and and kind of poking at you um but i think it's led to a lot of relationship building and again i i just commend people like ron and others who are able to, um, despite all this hurt and frustration with state and federal agencies, they're still um, open to teaching and they're still open to um, to helping people learn. And I think to the extent that we can, it's like really important to show gratitude to the people that are still teaching um, because it's, you know, it's hard and it, it's, it's work that that requires a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness and um, a lot of humor, apparently. But yeah, 
I, I don't know, Tony, if you have more to add. Um, yeah, just we were seeing a shift, certainly, in terms of the state's uh, interest in and acceptance of um, cultural fire and indigenous people burning. At the same time, there remain very large obstacles in terms of, for example, statewide burn bans that occur across a very diverse climatic and ecological place that is now known as California. And so in numerous instances, just this last year, lots of indigenous burners and prescribed burners have been shut down and have not been able to expand the practice of cultural and prescribed fire across the state. And so there still remains a very large amount of fear on the part of agencies, but also various industrial interests. Here in the Bay Area, for example, uh, agricultural interests have a fear of fire and the smoke um, that it produces. And so I think that we have to learn or relearn that some smoke is better than the amount of smoke that we've experienced here in as a result of fire suppression, um, colonial fire suppression. And so there's a lot more barriers that need to be broken down. And yes, what Denise is talking about, those experiences where the agencies come and learn from indigenous fire practitioners, that is a part of breaking down those barriers. That's where people become advocates for indigenous fire, because otherwise they may have some preconceived um, and racist notions toward what it is. It also involves right people being willing to let go of their power. That includes um, allowing access to those lands that indigenous peoples have been excluded to, excluded from. So there's a lot more work to be done. And I think uh, we're seeing the the future though um, in on a, on a small scale in various places. And I, I would say that in the places that I've worked in, Karuk and Yurok territories, the partnerships that exist between these different agencies, tribes, and NGOs run by indigenous people has allowed for large-scale transformation in terms of the frequency and scale of fire that is applied on the landscape. And I think also we, you know, we have this fear of wildfire, but that is also a part of the a part of the uh, ecology of California, right? We can't eliminate wildfire from the system either. We need to reconsider where we put structures and also reconsider whether or not we should be suppressing fire in those areas, uh, in, in mountainous areas that are really remote, just in order to reduce smoke for people who live in cities. Instead, we should really be also considering investing in ways to protect people who are vulnerable in cities who already have respiratory issues due to industrial pollution exposure in places like Oakland, right? So creating that mitigation in people's homes, but also allowing fire to coexist on a landscape as it has for time immemorial, right? Um, that's that's going to be the key moving forward is learning how to accept that and not this jerk knee-jerk response of putting it out, which has led to the disasters that we've experienced um, in the past decade. 
So in your article, you all highlighted a few agreements between different tribal groups and different universities. And it seemed like you were um, approaching those those agreements and relationships in a really positive light. I'm wondering if we can end by just highlighting some of those relationships um, on the Santa Cruz coast with the Amamatsun Land Trust. Denise, you already mentioned Ron Good, but working with the North Fork, Mono, and Southern Sierra Miwok tribes with UC and CSU students, and then the UC Berkeley Kadu Collaborative Research Project. Um, can we just very briefly highlight those to close us out today? Sure. I think... Uh... Some of the work that has been done by academics has dispelled some of the notions that um, many folks have held about wildfire and indigenous burning historically and into the future. Um, at the same time, I think, right, it's the folks on the ground that are making things happen. Um, and so a lot of how resources flow in part in the state are to support research. And so as academics, I think it's really important to try and channel the resources presented to the university into those communities who um, really don't have access to resources in the same way as these institutions do. And so that's what all of these um, partnerships have tried to do. Um, the Karuk UC Berkeley Collaborative try, has tried and successfully has channeled resources to the Karuk tribe um, to, su to support outstanding research questions that the tribe has. Same with the Amamutsun um, uh, Land Trust and the Amamutsun um, Tribal Band. Uh, folks from UC Berkeley have really supported that work and um, by producing data that then state agencies are more likely to listen to. Uh, for better or for worse, um, many of these kind of these entrenched uh, assumptions about what kind of knowledge is prioritized creates a lot of division um, and also exclusive, ex excludes um, indigenous fire practitioners. Um, and so this is one way that we're trying to, I, I would say, circumvent some of these obstacles. Yeah, and I guess I'll just um, talk a little bit more about burning with, with Ron, who's been a really great mentor and just a, a good partner. So we, we get to work with Ron through a course at UC Davis on cultural burning called Keepers of the Flame and been around for several years. And, and the really cool thing about it is that people like Ron or um, Diana Almendares, who's uh, Wintun, have welcomed us onto the places where they burned to teach us about how they burn. And we've been able to support those workshops and support both uh, Ron and Diana to, you know, bring other universities um, out to the workshops to bring, you know, agency folks, um, folks um, who are policymakers or funders to come and learn from them. And I think what it's created is this really cool community of practice where we 
get to practice not just, you know, burning, which is certainly very important, like how to have a good relationship with fire, but really how to um, how to create a future where decision making is different, where learning and, and growing with Indigenous communities, following Indigenous priorities, how we can collaborate with each other through that lens. And so I think just having people come back year to year and engage and learn and, um, you know, get teased a little bit when they fail. <laughs> I think it's it's all been just really healing and just like a, a vision into the future. It's like we're practicing what the future could look like on this, um, you know, smaller piece of land. And I think throughout the years, people have taken what they practiced there and created new programs for their tribe, um, new nonprofits, and, you know, students have gone on to work um, in a number of places for tribes, um, for, you know, Diana or Ron, or even, you know, in state and federal agencies in kind of these positions where they're the ones that know the most about um, Indigenous fire because they spent, you know, years going to these workshops. They, they took dedicated time to, to think about cultural fire. And I think it's really empowering to see kind of not just what happens on the land, but how it kind of spreads from there and how creating these, you know, communities of practice is really it's just um so impactful even though you know maybe the state would look at that and say oh it's only five acres <laughs> that y'all are burning every year and i would say well we're we've created something that's huge um and that's community and that and that has the potential to really change california and so i don't know i i think it's beautiful um to be able to learn from ron and um I'm excited to go this year. So, And maybe we can hope that the five acres this year can be expansive moving forward. I love what you described as practicing what the future could look like. And that's by looking toward and working with our indigenous communities to decolonize wildfire practices. Denise and Tony, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Denise J. Martinez is a research administrator in the Native American Studies Department at UC Davis. She's a descendant of Tutunaku people and grew up in Shasta and Karuk homelands in colonized Northern California. Tony Marksblock is a professor in the Department of Anthropology, Geography, and Environmental Studies at Cal State East Bay in Hayward. Tony's research is focused on the socioecology of small-scale subsistence practices, including prescribed and cultural fire. Their recent co-authored article is called Indigenous Fire Futures, Anti-Colonial Approaches to Shifting Fire Relations in California. And a link to that article will be in the show notes for today's episode at kpfa.org. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>